David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. It's very nice to be back in this room. As you know, or as you possibly know, those of you who are familiar with my work, most of my talks are insane. <laughs> this talk is not insane. This talk is absurd. <laughs> we all have been going to Seder's since we can remember, most of us certainly in this room, why do you need a talk called the whole of the Seder in an hour, especially when it only takes about 20 minutes to read the whole Haggadah. This talk is actually going to be longer than it would take you to read through the Haggadah. But perhaps we can shed some interesting, new and perhaps even controversial light on the Seder in terms of historical context and in terms of what's happening in the Jewish world. But I also want to get to grips with the Seder itself. I, I felt for some time now that the Jewish world celebrates the Seder and a lot of people have been doing this very, very adequately, but sometimes we don't actually know totally what we're doing. And I'm not going to go through it in some sort of stereotypical fashion. I really want to get to grips with the underlying framework. And I also wouldn't mind if we make this interactive. In terms of seders, there are possibly some of you who've been to more seders than I have. And all of our knowledge collectively can help with this process. The other reason this talk is absurd apart from all the reasons I've outlined, is because at the very beginning of the Seder service, when you open the Haggadah, there is a one-minute summary of the whole thing. And in fact, some people even have the custom to recite it. We all know what it is. Oh, well, let me, let me since I've got a nice big ocean of paper here, I'm just going to, just to get us in the mood, I'm going to draw a very elaborate Seder plate for us, okay? So, that's about as good as it gets artistically from me. Uh, so we'll talk about the things and we'll stick them on there as we go into a bit of depth so that perhaps we can understand really what's going on. We have a framework right at the beginning of the Haggadah that you'll see that you can recite in about 10 seconds. Forget the one-hour Seder, forget the two-minute Seder, it's 10 seconds. It starts, of course, and I'll write these things in English. I know not everybody is familiar with Hebrew letters. I'll write them in English, and you'll help me. We start, of course, with Kadesh. Kadesh is Kiddush, and we make Kiddush just as we do on every Shabbat and festival. So we stand there, the festival begins. We're not obviously sanctifying the wine. We're sanctifying the day over the wine. And that, of course, is Kiddush. Then we have excellent urchats. Urchats, if you recall, we all get up and we wash our hands. That's washing hands. Why do we wash our hands at that point? We dip afterwards. We dip afterwards. Every time we dip food 
in Jewish law, if food is wet, especially vegetables or fruit, if they're wet, we have a tradition that we wash, but we don't wash with a bracha, of course. That's urchatz. Then we have the famous karpas, which is a little bit of veggie, whatever, all sorts of different customs. If, if we've got about 40 people in this room, there are at least 45 customs. Oh, this, of course, what I'm talking about, of course, comes after that whole obligatory 20-minute discussion that everybody's having about, oh, this is my Haggadah. Oh, that's your Haggadah. Yes, this is pizza. I got this from my bum mitzvah. This is this Haggadah. Right, so I'm just assuming that that's already taken place. We're going Kadesh, Urchat, Karpas. Why do we dip the Karpas? Appetizer is an excellent answer. Anyone know the, 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 the reason that, in fact, Jewish sources tell us we have the Karpas? There's all these tears, there's the symbolism of the spring, the rejuvenation, there's all these lovely philosophical answers, but there's one fundamental answer that has emerged out of the original Jewish sources, the Talmudic sources, what Chazal tells us is the whole reason the Karpas is there, so that we will ask, why is the Karpas there? Believe it or not, I'm not making that up. That is the fundamental reason why the karpas is there. So the karpas is just a little bit. Make sure you don't eat too much. Just a little bit. Bada boom. And then, of course, we have the famous yachatz. We take the middle matzah and k'teng. And we put the larger part away and we keep the smaller part with us. Everybody following me so far? It's all very familiar. Then we have the... And I'll do this in a different colour. Don't worry, this talk is not on this. I'm just going through this so I can show you exactly what we're going to talk about. We have Magid. What's Magid? Telling the story of the going out of Egypt. Then we have... Then we have Urchatz. No, no, no we, we've had Urchatz. Do we have Magid? Do we have Rachza, it's called. That's now washing again. This time with a Bracha. Then we have... We have... We have, it's actually officially called motzi and then matzah, because it's two separate brachot. One on, just like a motzi lechem in aretz, bringeth forth bread from the earth. That's the standard one we always make on Shabbat and festivals. Then we have a separate bracha on matzah. Then we have maror. Yep. Then we have this thing called korech, which is the famous Hillel sandwich. We take the matzah and the maror and we have it all together. That's korech. Then it's time to eat. So that's called shulchan orech. Then we have a very, very mystical ceremony called tzafun. And tzafun, obviously a billion different customs in how this works. The kids have it, the kids don't have it, the kids hide it, the adults hide it, everyone hides it, no one finds it. Whatever it is, but eventually, at some point, you've got to get this afikomen back. Smart kids know that. Gullible kids don't. And you get it back, and that's tzafun. That's the part that's been hidden when you did the yachats, when you broke the matzah. So that big piece of matzah now comes back. Very, very mystical, very important, and very, very symbolic of what that represents. We'll be going into that in a moment. After tzafun, then, of course, we have... Barech, so we say Birkat Amazon, we bench, we say grace after meals. Then, excellent, Halel. And then Nirza, which is this little formula that we say 
to show that we've completed all the formalities of the Seder. Obviously, in most households, after this, there are all those songs at the end of the Haggadah. Those songs are important. Those songs have great mystical import, but they're not part of the original essential framework of the Haggadah. Within this, of course, some of you I know are very pleased because you're thinking, I've got to the end, you can go home in a minute, but, in fact, there's a lot more to talk about. We have, in between this scenario, we have four cups of wine. Each cup of wine representing in the 6th chapter of Exodus, in the book of Shmot, in the 6th chapter, verses 6 to 7, you'll find the four expressions, v'hotseti, v'hotsalti, v'gaalti, v'lakachti, the whole four different modes or dimensions of redemption that are mentioned there, each cup symbolically represented. Well, obviously, we have a cup for Kiddush, we have a cup just here, at the end of the Magid, we have a cup right after we say Birkat Amazon, and we have a cup after Hillel, after Hallel. Everybody follow? That's the Seder. That's the Seder. But the Seder in... F- I don't need all these colours. The Seder, in fact, is a lot more. And I want to give, perhaps, an even simpler structure than this, by which we can come to terms with what we're really doing. What we're really doing on Seder night is we're performing for, once again, the number four is extremely important on Seder night, we're performing for fundamental mitzvot, for fundamental commandments of the Torah to the Jewish people for all generations. It just so happens that these four commandments all come together on the night of the 15th of Nisan. They all come together on the Seder night. Remember, the very term Seder is really more of an Ashkenazic invention. Whatever you want to call it, the night of Pesach is the time that these four fundamental mitzvot come together. Two of these mitzvot, and obviously I'm about to say what they are, but two of these mitzvot, two of these commandments, are pretty much exactly as they have always been for thousands of years. They have not changed. When you perform two of these mitzvot, you're performing them in exactly the same way that your ancestors, 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 ancestors performed them going back at least three millennia. Those two mitzvot, which are almost identical, are matzah, because the matzah we eat today is basically identical to the matzah that they were eating in all generations. When you stick that cardboard stuff in your mouth, you know that the taste you're experiencing is exactly the same taste that they experienced in the year 1500, in the year 1000, in the year 500, 0, minus 500, minus 1000, whenever it was, they were eating the same matzah. Admittedly, we've got certain techniques of production now, they're a little different. Machine-made matzah has enabled us to reach a level of consistency of cardboard that we didn't have before, but the... I'm going to be a little bit harsh when I say cardboard. Actually, a lot of people like matzah. I do happen to like matzah. 
but as you're all aware, <laughs> it's good that it's just a week. By the way, ov- obviously, obviously, you don't have to eat matzah for the rest of Pesach. You don't have to eat matzah for the rest of Pesach. You just can't eat bread. And you can't eat any chametz, obviously. But the only time you have an obligation to eat matzah is on the Seder night. Everybody follow that? So it's really, you're eating matzah for the rest of Pesach by default because you can't have anything else. But on the night of the Seder, you must eat matzah. You can't say, uh, 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 don't feel like it. Matzah, a quantity of matzah, a kazayat, a small amount of matzah, has to be eaten by everybody. This all assumes, of course, that you've got rid of your chametz. Maror is the other one that's exactly the same. The maror we eat now, basically, horseradish and other variants thereof, is pretty much exactly the same bitter herb. There are, of course, many customs in the Jewish world. Some people have horseradish, some people have romaine lettuce with its very bitter roots and so on. But maror is essentially the same. So let's put some maror here. By the way, there is this very confusing situation that everybody sees in their Haggadah. On the one hand, you've got Maror, very clear, very happy with that. Everybody, certainly in English-speaking countries like England, like Australia, where I grew up, other countries, it's horseradish. Everybody knows. And you remember as a kid, Daddy would give you a little bit of horseradish and you'd go screaming through the house, oh my God, oh my God, right? Horseradish. But most people also will find in their Haggadah and on their Seder plate, Another bitter herb as well, which is known as the chazeret. Now, why do we have that? Some people use horseradish for the maror and radish for the chazeret. Some people use romaine lettuce and radish or horseradish and romaine. Whatever combination of different things. Why do we have these two different herbs? These two different bitter herbs? Anyone know? Because, I mean, it's a very confusing thing. People look at them and go, okay, I'll put some chazer. It tells me to do that, I'll do that. But really, the Torah tells us there's a pasuk that says, Al-matzot umerorim yochluhu. That you should eat the Paschal sacrifice, which we're going to talk about soon, on matzah and, for want of a better translation, maroz. So, Traditionally, we have developed two types of maror. Some people don't have that, and it's okay. If you just have one type of maror, that's okay. But traditionally, we have seen these developments throughout the Haggadah, throughout the generations, that we've come to the situation we have maror and chazeret to everybody's confusion. Now, those two are exactly the same, but it's important to remember that they're not customs. These are not Customs, matzah and maror. These are biblical injunctions. These are mitzvot asei deoraita. They are Torah commandments. You are eating these things in fulfillment of a total biblical injunction that merges with the very core and essence of your Jewish being. They come from the Torah. And that's what we do. On the night of Pesach, we have Matzah and Maror. We are told by the Torah that the Jewish people will be eating Matzah and Maror for all their generations. It is one of the most outstanding things when we actually sit and we realize after millennia. Remember that the Jewish people, I made this point when I spoke here in this room before, a few months ago. 
that the Jewish people do not survive history randomly. We survive for a purpose. And we are, in a sense, and I know what I'm about to say might sound exaggerated, and people are going to say, oh, yes, well, he's just being... You know. Jewish history is a force of nature. There's no other way to describe it. Because so far, nothing that's been thrown at us has managed to overcome us. We have just continued on and on and on. Matzah and Maror, says the Torah, you will eat for all your generations. Here we are, eating Matzah and Maror. doesn't matter how observant you are. You know, they did a lot of surveys recently to look, especially in American Jewry, which of course is the example par excellence of assimilation. And they say, what is the festival that most Jews are participating in? They thought it was going to be Hanukkah. It's not. It's Pesach. Everybody eats matzah and maror. Now, we have two other biblical injunctions that come together. And it's this next one that is going to occupy us for some time. We need to talk about this to get this very clear. Because a lot of people are a bit confused about it. It is, of course, Pesach. The mitzvah from which the very festival takes its name. Now, a lot of people, and some of them might even be in this room, one of them might even be talking, get very squeamish about the word sacrifice. It's a difficult word for us today. We don't really relate to the whole idea of sacrifices. Even those of us who pray three times a day for the temple to be rebuilt are secretly harboring the thought, yes, I'm, 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 I know I'm meant to be praying for the rebuilding of the temple, but I'm not sure if I'm totally okay with the whole reconstruction of the sacrificial cult. Sacrifices don't really sit with the modern mind. Despite the fact that we as a society process millions of bodies of meat every day for our own personal consumption, the idea of taking an ox or a lamb or a goat or some other animal and putting it up on an altar as a sacrifice to God doesn't sit with us. So everything I'm about to say, we need to remember that the modern mind has to come to terms with this, but it is an inalterable fact that... Jewish spirituality has a place for this concept of sacrifice. There are some very, very big authorities in Jewish spiritual history who have said that when the temple is rebuilt, we will not have sacrifice. But there are many, many who do. And certainly, this sacrifice is coming back. There's no question of that. In other words... When we do get the whole thing going again, this will be one of them. But that's okay. Because this one gets eaten by us. Now I need to go into a little bit of a description about what I'm talking about. Some of you I can see are sitting there going, I have no idea what he's talking about. That's okay. We're going to go very slowly. If we were living in Jerusalem now, and if the waqf did not control the Temple Mount as it does now, 
we would either be in Jerusalem or making a pilgrimage, a visit to Jerusalem, even if we were living in London or New York or Beersheba or anywhere else outside Jerusalem, we would make a pilgrimage, if we could, to Jerusalem for the Passover. We would arrive some days before, we would organize our accommodation. We would notice that there were tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people streaming towards Jerusalem in anticipation of the Passover. The sources that we have, the sources, historical sources, remember most of our information of the Second Temple period historically within Jewish sources come from generally one of three major descriptions of what it was like in the Second Temple, either Josephus or Philo or the Talmud, So we know what this looks like. We know what's meant to happen. People are streaming towards Jerusalem days, if not weeks, in advance. And Jerusalem is very busy setting up huge communal ovens everywhere. On the eve of Passover, a representative of your group of families, because let's say, let's face it, one family alone can't really digest an entire sheep in one night. I know that some of you look a bit hungry, I'm a bit hungry myself, but even so, those of you who've seen an entire sheep being spit roasted would know that it's not something that a family can eat in an evening. So, number of families would band together, they would send one representative early in the afternoon to go, who's been to, most of you have been to Jerusalem? Yeah? So you know the old city, you take this lamb or a goat and you would go to the old city and you would walk with your lamb and your goat and on the way, no doubt, you would meet thousands and thousands of other people all walking their goats and their lambs and you would arrive because we have very, very detailed descriptions of what the Paschal sacrifice was like. You would arrive at the Temple Mount where you would either be admitted into one of three major groups that would be ushered into the temple. The big doors of the temple would be open. You would suddenly see all the priests standing there in their lines, the Levites on the sides getting ready to sing the Hallel. You would either be in the first or the second or the third group. And each group would go in, take their lambs. There would be priests that would slaughter the lamb. They would take some of the blood from the lamb. It would be passed right along these rows of priests who were literally going like that between empty bottles, empty vessels and full vessels. And they would, these vessels would make their all their way up to the altar. The blood would be sprinkled on the altar and your Passover sacrifice would have been made. In the meantime, as soon as your group's finished, you would extract yourself with all the other thousands of people standing in the courtyard of the temple outside And you would wait till just as it was dark with your flayed, because they would flay it as well for you. It all comes in one service. They would flay the lamb for you with this big chunk of meat and you would take it back to the family. It would be cooked in one of the communal ovens. You would sit down to do your Seder and then as towards the end of the Seder you would go and you would get this Paschal sacrifice and you would eat it as the main part of your meal and certainly as the last thing you eat just as we have the Afikomen today. 
That is how the Pesach is observed according to the Torah. We can't do that today. Why? Well, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. Because we don't necessarily need the temple to offer the Paschal sacrifice. Some people estimate that the Paschal sacrifice on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and (laughs) this is not something that's hugely backed up by a lot of historical sources, but there are some assertions within historical research that the Paschal sacrifice was offered as late as the 6th century. That's 500 years after the destruction of the Temple. Many, many halachic authorities don't regard the temple as a necessary condition for offering the paschal sacrifice. These authorities are the ones that are demanding, why are we not doing this now? The reason we don't do it now, and maybe you're unaware, but every single year there is a petition before the High Court of Israel on behalf of people who are trying to force the waqf, who is in control of the Temple Mount, to allow about 20 or 30 square metres, because it has to be done on the Temple Mount, just 20 or 30 square metres of the Temple Mount, not encroaching upon the Dome of the Rock or Al-Aqsa, so that some people can go up and perform the Paschal Sacrifice. That permission has not yet been forthcoming. It's no surprise that the Waqf has said no. But every year, more and more and more pressure is put on the Israeli court system, the police. You do realise the situation on Harabaya, don't you, at the moment, on the Temple Mount. We've seen a number of, I mean, even in our own lifetimes, we've seen, even in the last 15 to 20 years, we've seen an evolution of the different bodies involved in this process. I remember when I was young and the first time I went to Jerusalem and there were these big signs that said Orthodox Jews are not allowed up on the Temple Mount, blah, blah, blah. Remember the rabbinate has... Remember Anyone remember seeing those signs? Today, almost all the rabbis in Jerusalem, all the different authorities from all different camps are now saying, no, it's actually okay to go up on the Temple Mount. The problem is... The problem is that the Israeli government, together with the Waqf, have set certain conditions. You can go up on the Temple Mount now, as a Jew, they have certain conditions. One of those conditions is that you're not allowed to be seen moving your lips, unless you're talking to someone. Can you imagine? You're not allowed to be seen moving your lips in case you're praying. The Waqf has only allowed Jewish visitors up there on condition that Jews do not pray on the Temple Mount. This is astonishing. This is like some sort of medieval mindset, but that's the world we live in. I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression, by the way. I'm not going into this because I'm some right-wing fanatic. I'm just describing the situation as it is. Obviously, the people at the forefront of this push to try and get the Paschal sacrifice reintroduced is the newly constituted Sanhedrin. And they are concerning themselves with a number of political issues, and this is one of them. Now, we have, as I said, very detailed descriptions of what the Paschal sacrifice is and what happens when it's offered. We do know that 
the Romans around the time of King Agrippa, so that's round about the middle of the first century, used the Paschal ceremony to take a census. It was very, very difficult. They knew from experience it was very difficult to count Jews. The last time they tried to take a census in around about 6 CE, we just about had, they just about had a full-fledged revolt on their hands. So a few decades later, when they wanted to do it again, they came upon the idea of taking a kidney from every lamb that was offered in the Paschal sacrifice. Now, I'm also aware that sometimes first-century historians do tend to exaggerate, especially with numbers. But even if this is an exaggeration, it's astonishing. They found 600,000 kidneys, meaning that there must have been millions of people in Jerusalem for the Passover sacrifice. People came from all over the Jewish world. Remember, we had huge Jewish communities in Alexandria. We had communities in Rome. We had communities in Babylon. We had communities all over the Jewish world. And Jews were streaming into Jerusalem for this event. The Pesach was not merely another sacrifice. The Paschal sacrifice was always, was always a symbol of the unity of the Jewish people. It was always a celebration of our ongoing historical destiny. The seven different Pesach sacrifices that are described in the Bible, that we have in the Tanakh, all represent unique junctures of Jewish history. The seven, of course, are... The first one, when we came out of Egypt. One year later, which is described in the book of Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers, which happened in the desert, exactly one year later. Then we have another one that's alluded to, not alluded to, there's another explicit one in the time of Joshua in Gilgal, just after we came into the land of Israel. Then we have another one alluded to in the time of King Saul, right after the sort of the kingdom was established. We have a famous one that was effected by one of the righteous kings of the first temple period, King Hezekiah, in the late 8th century, around about 725. We have, a hundred years later, another one by his great-grandson, King Josiah, Yoshiyahu, at the time of the huge religious reform that he effected, in around about the year 620. And we have another one famously mentioned, under Ezra at the time of the dedication of the second temple. Now it doesn't mean that Pesach sacrifices weren't being offered throughout that whole duration, but the Tanakh mentions these ones because they are acutely important phasic transitions within Jewish history. They always come at times, huge Passover celebrations happen at critical junctures in Jewish history. There's no question that if we were suddenly to find ourselves in a position to rebuild the temple as the full completion of this generation's return to the land of Israel, that we would offer a big paschal sacrifice and reinstitute the whole thing. At the moment, we don't. A lot of people think that you can't do it because you don't have a temple, but if they went up there and they created an altar, a lot of other people think that you can't do it because you have to be in a state of purity. But we know that if most of the Jewish people are not in a state of Levitical purity, it's okay. And there's no question that most of the Jewish people are in a state of Levitical impurity. 
because we haven't had the whole processes to take us out of that. This is real stuff. I know it sounds like a bit la-la, but in fact, these are real historical processes. You come out of exile, you perform a paschal sacrifice. So in a sense, the fact that we have not reinstituted the Pesach is the real key behind the fact that we are still in some ways, despite having come back to the land of Israel miraculously, we're still in a slightly exilic framework. The f- so, the Pesach, as we have it today, is radically different from how the original commandment is. The original commandment is, we take this lamb or goat, we sacrifice it, we eat it at home. We have to eat the whole thing overnight. By the way, you can't leave any till the morning, you can't break any of its bones, all the conditions that apply to the Paschal sacrifice that you read about. That's real. We don't have it today, so we represent it by that big sort of shank bone thing that sits there. Some people... In some customs, they're a bit freaked out by the idea of a big lamb leg sitting there, so they have a chicken bone or other types of things. Some people have different opinions. You can lift it up and wave it about. You can't lift it up and wave it about. You can have roasted stuff. You can't have roasted stuff. By the way, while I'm on that subject, many of you would be aware of one of the other developments within the halachic world at the moment is an increasing push towards getting rid of the antiquated Ashkenazic minhag I can hear people gasping already of not eating kitniot on Pesach, everybody know what I'm talking about Ashkenazic Jews have for a long long time now basically regarded things like rice and peas on Pesach as you know, worse than running out and getting McDonald's but There are many, many moves now within the religious Ashkenazic world to revise this. And there are many, many poskim, big halakhic authorities coming out now saying, especially in the land of Israel, where uh, where they're saying, wait a minute, we're in Israel. So the whole issue of Sephardic and Ashkenazic doesn't really apply. And they're eating eating kitniot. So one of the great things about Pesach is that it's living history. At all times, we see dynamic changes within the Jewish people about how Pesach is observed. But the fundamental issues remain. We have these mitzvot. Pesach is radically different from what it used to be. This shankbone simply exists to remind us of what the Korban Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice, actually is. Of course, there's also an egg, isn't there? There's an egg... And I know, I know that the egg, for a lot of people, has all sorts of symbolic importance. The egg is round, and it's fertility, and it's the whole... You know what I'm talking about. Everybody discusses the egg, because, of course, it's very, very important, especially when you've got children present to discuss all the things that are on the Seder plate. What is the egg really there for? It's the Korban Chagigah. It's another sacrifice. It's not the Paschal sacrifice. It's the special festival sacrifice that's brought. We can't bring that anymore, so we symbolize remembrance of it by the egg on the Seder plate. The other mitzvah, which is a biblical injunction that we still perform, so these two are exactly as they always were, This one is radically different. And the fourth one, we still observe, but we observe it in a dynamic 
transformative form that's constantly fluid and changing throughout history. That, of course, is the mitzvah of Haggadah. I'm not talking about the Haggadah. The Haggadah is a book. The Haggadah is a textual format which is really almost like an example of what this mitzvah could look like. The actual mitzvah of Haggadah, of course, comes from the biblical injunction in the book of Shemot in Exodus, Vihigadata Levincha Bayom Hahu Lemor. You will tell your children on this day, saying, because of this, God brought me out of Egypt. That's the mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to tell the story. Now you don't, in other words, the Seder without the Haggadah is perfectly okay. But the Seder without the mitzvah of Haggadah is impossible. Haggadah is a core injunction. It's not just the case that we happen to explain what we're doing because otherwise, you know, the evening is boring. It's actually a full mitzvah, just as important as matzah, just as important as marod, just as important as the Korban Pesach, to tell the story of how we came out of Egypt. Now, this telling of the story has taken many, many different forms over Jewish history. By the early Middle Ages, that is really, really recent in Jewish history, by the Gaonic period, and especially, I mean, the earliest form of the Haggadah that we really have in a full formal textual form is Sa'ad Gaon's Haggadah, and that's already... 10th century, and by that time, although many, many of the elements that we have in the Haggadah are Mishnaic, and that means that the Haggadah for thousands of years has been an ongoing process of what's the best way to give over this story. And the interesting thing is, and this sometimes brings to light many of the elements of the Haggadah, if you look at that big section of the Haggadah, which we call Magid, that sits between the breaking of the Matzah and when we finally get to eat, that whole long section, that when you're a kid, it seems really, really long, but as you get older, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. That is the mitzvah of Haggadah. If we look at that carefully, all of that material in the middle of the Haggadah is about people telling the story, which means that the mitzvah of telling the story is really up to you. It's totally dynamic. It's how you tell the story to your children, to your visitors. We have this mitzvah of Haggadah is related to, in the Torah, four times. Four times. That is the whole meaning behind the whole concept of the four sons and so on. It's not randomly that the rabbis go, oh, there are four different types of children. They are based on trying to work out why the Torah has got four different ways in which it wants us to tell this story. Now there is a big discussion in the Talmud 
about where the story begins. Where does the story begin? Go on. Obviously, it's a Talmud. There are at least two possibilities. Sorry? You should really give the talk. No. No. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The two famous early Amoraim, meaning of the, those, you remember from six months ago, the Talmudic period divided into two sub-periods, the Tanaim and the Amoraim. So we're talking now around early 3rd century CE. Yep. Very late in Jewish history, only about 1,700 years ago. Rav and Shmuel are arguing about this. Shmuel, the famous Amora, this is right at the beginning of the Amoric period. I mean, the, the ink on the Mishnah is just fresh on the page. They're discussing it. Shmuel says, we should start the story, the fulfillment of this mitzvah, to tell the story, we should start from the words... Avadim Hayinu. Everybody's got at least a little bit of Hebrew. What does it mean, Avadim Hayinu? We were slaves. Avadim Hayinu We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Why? Because that's the actual process of Exodus. That's what this whole telling the story is about. It's about the process of Exodus. Now, the process, you know, English is a funny language because in the effort to translate things, and I, I, I'm fairly well known for being someone who is very anti-translation, I'm constantly pushing people to familiarize them, get over the psychological hurdles and familiarize themselves with Hebrew because certain Hebrew concepts and terms really they can be translated, but the translation is never adequate to describe the process. We've always talked about Pesach as a festival of freedom, but it's not really, freedom is not really the best word for Pesach. The best word that I can think of in English, and you're welcome to disagree with me, but I think when you look at the deep idea behind Pesach, it's not freedom. I mean, of course, everyone wants freedom, blah, 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 freedom is brilliant. <coughs> it's liberation. We gave the concept of national liberation to the world. We, we gave it to them. That's us. We are the people of national liberation. Every single national liberation movement that comes after is founded upon this idea that the Jewish people gave to the world that they gained from their own exodus from slavery towards freedom. I mean, famously... Who makes this point famously? I that's a bit of an unfair question, obviously. <laughs> a number of people, including God. But, not people, but you know. Uh, those of you who are familiar, for example, with the, with, with the philosophy of Mendelssohn, the great Jewish philosopher of the age of reason. No? You're shaking your head? No, no, no. Sometimes when you're in shuls and you say Moses Mendelssohn, people go... <gasps> Because, you know, father of the Haskalah, father of the Reform. Uh, no, Moses Mendelssohn is an 18th century philosopher. He's, he's massive. And his 18th century classic called Jerusalem is one of the classic philosophical texts of the 18th century. I mean, Kant referred to it as irrefutable as a book. The whole purpose of the Jewish people in the world 
is to remind the world of the concept of freedom and to maintain the conscience of freedom in the world itself throughout history. That's why we survive. So the whole point of Pesach and the whole point of the Seder is not that we just sit around feeling free because you don't need Pesach to feel free Especially now, 150 years after emancipation, and everybody's got equal rights, and everybody can sit around and lounge around on their sofa and watch TV as long as they want. We're all free. And if you want to take a holiday to Costa Rica, you can go there. If you want to change jobs, you can go there. I mean, there is perhaps, you know, if you're a super Marxist, you might say everyone's enslaved. But at the end of the day, we feel pretty free today. So it's not really about existential freedom in that sense. It's about the process of liberation. What is it? What, what, we, what starts the Haggadah? What starts right here after Kiddush? Oh, after, after the... Well, what do we start the whole thing with? But after Kiddush, you know this. Ha lach ma This bread of affliction. What language is that? Aramaic. We are starting the Seder in Aramaic, which is the language of exile. It's a holy language, it's not Hebrew. It's the language of exile. It's the language of one step removed from our spiritual center. So we start, and, and we even say in that paragraph, Hashta Avdeh. Now we are slaves. So we start the Seder as a form of enslavement. We start the Seder not liberated, and we become liberated as we move dynamically through the Seder. This is the idea behind Shmuel's opinion about where we start Magid. Avadim Hayinu. We were slaves. It's all about that process of liberation. Probably the biggest commentator on the Haggadah who focuses on this idea, one of the most famous commentaries on the Haggadah was written by a man who knew about exile. About, it's, a, it's a famous commentary on the Haggadah written by Don Yitzhak Abarbanel. Abarbanel, everyone knows who Don Yitzhak Abarbanel was? He's basically the guy, you know, the famous expulsion from Spain in 1492, the 700-year community of Spain crashing down overnight. He's basically the guy who's asked to switch off the lights. He's the last, really, the last Jew to leave Spain, and Ferdinand and Isabella are even offering him that he can stay in Spain if he wants. They'll give him a minion, they'll give him kosher food, but of course he does it because he's effectively Isabella's treasurer. He doesn't want that, and he leaves, and he switches off the light. Here's a man who knew about exile. Don Yisrael Brabanel tells us why, why, if we're still in exile, are we going through this whole rigmarole of liberation, this festival of freedom? Because the whole process of the Seder itself is not a commemoration of some, a symbolic commemoration of some historical event. It is, in itself, contained a process of spiritual liberation. As you begin this, and don't forget all the preparations that we do before Pesach and the bondage that's involved in that, but we do move through the Seder towards liberation. Now, the other opinion in the Talmud about where we start Magid is... Rav... Oh, oh. 
Rav, who is the colleague of Shmuel, he's the famous Abaricha that came from Palestine around the year 220, brought the Mishnah with him to Babylonia, which was the new center in the 3rd century. Remember, these opinions come from the 3rd century, but by that time, the Haggadah is already starting to take its final shape. And we're starting to, the only reason it's taking its shape then is because, of course, it's precisely during the Talmudic period that we're beginning to write these things down because we realize that otherwise we're going to lose them. Rav believes that we should start this mitzvah of Magid, this mitzvah of Haggadah, we should start it from where? Mitchila, from the beginning of day Avodah Zarah, you Avoteno, our ancestors were idol worshippers. Now what's the whole point of that? What's the whole point of going that far back in the story? Who's he talking about, by the way? He's talking about Avraham's parents. Our ancestors were idol. He's going all the way back to Avraham. Why? Because for Rav, the whole point of the Seder is a celebration of this constant phenomenon of Jewish history of exile and return. Exile and return. Exile and return. It happened to Avraham. It happened to Yitzchak. It happened to Yaakov. And everything that happens to the forefathers and the foremothers happens also to their descendants. Then it happens to Yosef. Then it happens to the Bnei Israel. Then it happens to the Jewish people again. And it happens in Babylon. And it happens when Rome comes along. And each time it's a different type of exile. And it's a different type of return. And each time we are refining more and more and more our being in the world. This is what Pesach is all about. It's about the constant cycle of exile and return in order to bring to the world this realization of freedom, this realization of liberation. He's more concerned, not so much with the actual acute point of the liberation, but with the historical processes that it entails. This is a very, very significant discussion about the Haggadah. Obviously, the Seder doesn't end there. You know that it's not just about telling the story. There's something even more important than telling. Perhaps not more. I mean, the biblical commandment, the mitzvah asedi orita, is about Haggadah. But the real key to Haggadah is questions. Questions are at the core of the Seder. Why? Because Judaism, and here I'm going to go a little controversial, okay? So just put your seatbelts on and relax. <laughs> Judaism is not a religion. It's not a religion. It doesn't sit on the bookshelf of ideas somewhere between Christianity and Islam. Judaism is the dynamic spiritual revelation of the Jewish people in the world. The world word religion doesn't even come close to describing it. Religion deals in answers. It's true. 
but true spiritual journeys deal with questions. We're told in the Talmud that if, in the Mishnah, in fact, if a person <coughs> is sitting with their family, then you generally ask the youngest child to ask the questions, or the most intelligent child to ask the questions. Yeah, well, yeah. If you don't have any children, then you choose one of the guests, you choose one of the adults. If a man's sitting there with his wife, his wife asks the questions, and if he's sitting there by himself, he asks himself the questions. The questions are absolutely vital. That whole thing that we know, Manishtana, is absolutely at the core. That's why it comes at the beginning of Magid, at the beginning of that whole mitzvah. Because really, the questions are what bring to consciousness the whole spiritual journey that we're going through. Manishtana does not really mean, by the way, why is this night different from other nights? Once again, a translational misunderstanding perhaps passed down through the generations of English translators. It doesn't really mean that. It can, I know. But it doesn't really mean that. Manishtana is really an, explana- an exclamation of, whoa, how different this is. It's, more, it's like cracky, it's so different. Manishtana, how different is this? And these four questions and many, many more questions are designed to arouse this level of consciousness. And famously, famously, as you know, and I'm not here to tell you what it says in the Haggadah because you've all read it a zillion times and you're about to read it in a couple of weeks, but I just want to look at the, some of the historical processes behind one aspect of it. Famously, as the Haggadah tells us, doesn't matter how clever you are, doesn't matter how informed you are, doesn't matter how big a rabbi you are, you've got to discuss these questions. You've got to ask questions and you've got to discuss it. And the famous Seder that happens in B'nai Barak. Now, for many of us, we read the Haggadah and we go, oh, a famous Seder in B'nai Barak. Oh, a whole lot of rabbis, you know. Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfun, Rabbi Elazar ben Azari. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you're sitting there? No, nice story. Five rabbis get together, they have a bit of a schmooze, have a bit of a Seder. The students come, it's time for the smart. Well, these five rabbis are not just like randomly put together in this story. These five rabbis are the pillars of the world. You know that when Yohanan ben Zakkai, the spiritual leader of his generation, the famous sage of the house of Hillel, and remember that Yohanan ben Zakkai who single-handedly, basically, reconstituted the whole of the spiritual and cultural life of the people of Israel, said that Hillel had 120 students, I am the least of them. And when he was smuggled out of Jerusalem and made that deal with Vespasian in around 68-69 and said, I know you're going to destroy the temple, but give me the town of Yavna and I can rebuild the Jewish people through Jewish education through Torah, who were the two guys that carried him out in that coffin, hidden in a coffin, because that was the only way to leave Jerusalem in 69 CE, I can tell you. Eliezer ben Hirkanus and Yehoshua ben Hananiah. Now, Eliezer ben Hirkanus and Yehoshua ben Hananiah, the two big students of Yohanan ben Zakkai, who went on to become the great spiritual beacons of the project of Yavna, 
sometimes, you know, we think that when we talk about the rabbis of the Mishnaic period, it's all one big block. It's like, like, like when people talk today about, you know, the Haredi world, right? It's like they sit in one big black block. But it's not like that. These guys came from different factions and different classes within the rabbinic world, within the world of the sages themselves. Eliezer ben Hyrcanus came from the patrician class. His family had money, his family had lands, they owned date orchards. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah was a pleb, had nothing, came from nothing, Financially, economically, they represented very... Actually, it's interesting because there's a discussion in the Talmud that represents really the different classes they came from because it's a discussion of the meaning of the Hebrew word dvash. You know, the Torah describes the land of Israel as Eretz, Zavat, Chalav, Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, dvash, we've always understood to mean honey, but it is a big discussion in Yavna about what honey was. According to Eliezer ben Herkonos, dvash, the word dvash means the pulp from figs and dates. Why? Because his family had acres and acres of date orchards and so on. For him, it was easy to access that. That thick, sweet stuff must mean that. Yeshua ben Hananya, for Yeshua ben Hananya, dvash means bee honey. A beehive is something you don't need a plantation for. You can find it growing wild in the forest. Anyone can access honey just by having a bit of luck wandering around the forests and the fields. So it's a big discussion. It represents... I'm just going into this slightly because they represent different aspects of the classes within the world of the sages of Yavna. Now, round about just not long after the destruction of the temple, round about the late 70s, a guy, a 40-year-old man who can barely read Aleph Bet, a total illiterate, he's been a rent-out shepherd all his life, can't read, turns up at Yavin and says, I want to learn Torah. He goes to Eliezer ben Hurkunas and Eliezer ben Hurkunas says, I'm really sorry, but um, I, 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 you can't afford to pay me. Now, it's not that he was saying, I'll only teach you if you can afford to pay me. He's saying, if you are so poor you're not going to be able to learn Torah without taking another job to sustain you. And the level, the demand on your time and intellect from learning with me will simply not make you an effective student. I'm sorry, I've got so many other thousands of people who want to study under me, I really can't take you on. So he goes to Yeshua ben Hananya. Yeshua ben Hananya didn't take any money, he had no money, he didn't ask any money, but he says, look, I'm really sorry, I can't teach you, this 40-year-old guy, I can't teach you, because... I don't charge anything. I teach the plebs, it's true, but I've got so many brilliant young students who want to learn Torah with me, then what am I going to do with you? The 40-year-old guy, married kids, can't even read Hebrew, what am I going to do with you? So eventually, this most famous mature-age student of the whole of Jewish history, who is, of course, Rabbi Akiva, at this stage he's just Akiva ben Yosef, finds a teacher called Rabbi Tarfon. Rabbi Tarfon's prepared to take him on. Now look at that story. They are all there. Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon, and the very young Elazar ben Azariah, who is, I mean, 
I wish that this was a lecture on first century Palestine and the politics of Yavna and the spiritual politics of Yavna because it becomes absolutely fascinating. They were all about to get into all sorts of bother with the Sanhedrin and the project of Yavna. Remember that Rabban Gamliel was the Nasi and Rabban Gamliel and all the politics. Rabban Gamliel is also mentioned in the Haggadah. All of these people, and that's why I'm urging you to look at all of these people in the Haggadah are not just names. They are immense doorways into incredibly fascinating aspects of Jewish history. All of these guys are sitting at that Seder. And that world came crashing down not too long after this with all the famous Hadrianic persecutions that wiped out that whole generation and we didn't see it again until it was revived towards the end of the second century under Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in the production of the Mishnah. But these are famous, famous sages. All right, I see, I see the time and I've been speaking for a while and uh, we've nearly arrived now but there is something obviously I just need to spend a minute on. We haven't even filled the Seder plate, that's cool. You'll do that at home. They, of course, famously spoke all night and their students came and, and told them that it's time to say the Shema. My father, I love a Shalom, used to actually make the point of the Seder. I know that everybody's got amazing points of making the Seder, but now that you've mentioned that, he would always make the point that their students were coming to tell them not just that it was Kriyat Shema Shel Shacharit, but that it was the time of the Shema of Martyrdom. But that's... Oh, all right. Once we get to here... Something, and you all know this, you all know this, because you all do it every year. Something really amazing happens. The whole mood of the Seder shifts. It's not just because you've now had two or three cups of wine, although that doesn't hurt. From the moment that we finish Berkat Amazon and we open the door to Elijah... What does it mean to open the door to Elijah? I just want to give you this little window into how every single facet of the Seder is a massive spiritual moment. What does it mean to open the door to Elijah? It doesn't just mean that you send your eight-year-old kid to go to the front door and be freaked out, as kids love to be, oh, right? And everybody crowds around and like, oh, can we see? Is it going down? Is it going down? Which, of course, is a hugely important part of the Seder. That's how we all grow up or grew up on it. And believe me, as I'm sure some of you, as well as me, have been at Seders where we have actually seen the wine go down, I'm convinced. And Elijah comes in and has a sip of wine and so on. But what does it really mean to open the door to Elijah? You know that the last Navi, the last prophet in Tanakh, is Malachi. And the last chapter of the last prophet of Tanakh, and the last verse of the last chapter of the last prophet of the Bible. And this is the guy who's telling you, after me, this is round about just after the year 500 BCE, after me... There's no more prophecy. Divine inspiration will go to the level of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, but direct divine prophecy ends with me. But I'll tell you when it's going to start again. 
הנה אנוכי שולח לכם את אליהו הנביא. Behold, I am sending you Elijah the prophet לפני היום הגדול והנורא, before the great big awesome day. That's why we regard the return of Elijah the prophet as the herald of the messianic era. Because Mashiach can't come until we have a prophet who stands and says, that's it. And that prophet is Elijah the prophet. That's why all the traditions about how Elijah is wandering around and Elijah comes to the Brit Milah and Elijah comes to the Seder. To open the door to Elijah is to open your Seder and yourself to the whole messianic, not, and when I say messianic, when I say messianic, Please be very careful with that word. Today in the world, that word can mean many things corruptly to a great many people. It really means the pure redemptive spirit that has gone through Jewish history that's not embodied in a particular candidate, but is embodied in the whole of Am Yisrael. The whole of the rest of the Haggadah, as you know, is mystically saturated with messianic expectation. It gets more and more and more and more intense. We know that Mashiach, we're told by the sages that Mashiach will come in Nisan, in the month of Nisan. Mashiach will come at Pesach. Remember that for many, many years, Jews couldn't open the door and recite, Shvoch chamatcha el pour out your wrath upon the nations. We know that that came into the Haggadah in medieval times. In medieval times, in many cases, in many places, it wasn't so simple to open the door. If you opened the door, in would come more than Elijah the prophet. But it gets more and more and more and more intense until finally, as you know, we reach this incredible crescendo. And I'm just going to finish on this note because the Haggadah does as well. But I want to point it out to you because a lot of people just think, it's nice. It's nice. This song here and a song there and it's nice for the kids. And if the kids are asleep, it's nostalgic for the adults and it's nice and we all know the tunes. And by that time we're not arguing over the tunes because we're so happy and we're filled with all this food and wine and, and this wonderful spiritual moment of redemption. But it's nice songs. But really... I'm here to tell you that the whole of Jewish history is contained in this phenomenal mystic composition called Chad Gadya. Chad Gadya is not just a random folk song. Famously, there is a huge mystical commentary on Chad Gadya written by none, no, no less than the Gaon of Vilna, Elijah the Vilna Gaon, the great, huge, mystic and spiritual figure of the 18th century, who gives a whole commentary where he should... Now, if a guy like the Vilna Gaon is going to spend time writing about Chad Gadya and what it means mystically and how it's interpreted in Jewish history, it's clearly not a simple random folk song. Amazingly also, Chad Gadya is in Aramaic, precisely where we started Halachma. We've done the whole thing in Hebrew, but for some reason, the beginning and the end are in Aramaic. Because we realize that we have not arrived at the final redemption, but we have somehow glimpsed 
we have somehow managed to convey the whole process of liberation that happens. Pesach is amazing because it's a direct relationship between these four mitzvot of the Torah and our ongoing true historical purposes. It's not a symbolic commemoration of an event. It is living. It is dynamic. It is us. Chad Gadya, the father who buys the goat, is of course... Well, close, very, for the Vilna Gaon, it's Yaakov Avinu, the father of all Israel, Jacob our father. What do you mean he got a goat? What did he do with this goat? With this goat, he got the blessings from his father Isaac so that it would be us and not the descendants of Esav and not the descendants of Esau who would carry through the blessing. The descendants of Esau are those who seek fulfillment, material fulfillment in the here and now, but the Jewish people are always in a constant state of postponement of the immediate acquisition of blessing because they know, they know that there is still work to be done in the world. When all the Christians are in heaven and when all the Muslims are in paradise, we will still be here. And we will be eating the matzah and the maror and telling the story of the going out of Egypt to make sure that there is liberation in the world for all generations. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.